Mark chapter 1. I was recently invited by a friend over to his house for lunch, and I was excited to go for a couple of reasons. One reason is I just enjoy time with this friend, and the second reason was I knew the food was going to be great. Uh, he was, he was going to do it upright. Loves to cook, and so I expected the menu was going to be incredible, and I, I was not disappointed. Everything I ate was spectacular. Now, I normally have the palate of a Neanderthal billy goat, and so when it comes time to eat, I just unhinge my jaw and just shovel in the slop, right? Uh, But this time, because the food was prepared with such care and such expertise, I, I slowed down so I could taste and I could enjoy and engage my brain in the process. And it, everything I ate just was incredible. It was amazing. And so I'm trying to explain this meal to my wife after the fact. And uh, I, everything I have to talk about is delicious. Everything was great. But there was one thing that got a lot of press, and I wouldn't have expected it. But the one thing that got a lot of press from me was this simple side dish of carrots, my friend had this unique way of cooking the carrots and preparing the carrots, just simple carrots, nothing huge added to them. But I told Melissa, they were the most carroty carrots I've ever had in my life. And that sounds totally stupid, I know, but I know what I mean when those words come out of my mouth. And it's not like I've, I, I, I'm not some huge super fan of carrots. I mean, carrots are fine. I enjoy carrots. But if you were to say which side dish or what dish of this whole meal are you going to remember the most, I, I would not have guessed the carrots. There, there's something you normally overlook, right? They're just filler in the pot roast or something like that. It's, it, no one's like, oh, we're having carrots tonight, hooray. But this dish, unbelievable, just carrots. Just carrots was all that it was. It was insane. So when I slowed down and I focused on it, I just I couldn't believe how good it was. Now, our passage today, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, is like the carroty side dish of Bible passages. It is brief, doesn't have a lot of detail. You've read it before, I'm sure of it. And you've looked at it and you thought, well, I thought Matthew told it better, or I think Luke tells it better. And so maybe you hopped over there to those Gospels to take a look at it and to see what they had to say. It's simple. It's not very flashy. But I'm telling you, there is life-changing power in the two scenes that make up our passage. Two scenes in this passage. Scene number one is Jesus' baptism in the wilderness. Scene number two is his temptation in the wilderness. And Each scene gives us a different perspective of Jesus And each scene is a call to action on our part. And so my goal today, as we immerse ourselves in these two scenes, is to make those calls to action clear for you. This is not a passage that we should read and then just quietly contemplate and think about while we go on our ethereal way. These put us into the fray. These engage us in action. They call us to action. If we study this right, then Satan will lose territory in our lives and in our world. That's the kind of power this passage has. So let me highlight for you two calls to action from these two moments in the life of Christ. Follow along with me as I read. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Carrots. Nuclear carrots is what we have in verses 9 through 13. There's two calls to action in these two moments in the life of Christ. I hope you're taking notes this morning. The first of this is this. The baptism of Jesus calls us to believe. The baptism of Jesus calls us to believe in verses 9 through 11. A common question we would ask when we get to this scene is why was Jesus baptized? But in order for us to understand why Jesus is baptized, it will help if we clarify the reason for John baptizing people to begin with. What is John about? Well, if you were to skip up to verse 4, it tells us that John was in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So if you remember from last week, John is the last of God's prophets. And he is announcing the arrival of the Messiah. And he is preparing a people for the Messiah. And the way he prepares those people is he calls them to himself. And then he calls them to confess their sin, repent from sin, and be baptized in a new identity as a new people of the Lord. These are the Messiah's new people being prepared for him. So uh, John is making this new people and he's saying these people who are awaiting the Messiah are marked by an identity of repentance and confession, not by their Jewishness. What marks the Messiah's people Confession of sin, repentance from sin, trust in God, and fruit that comes from that repentance. These are the people of the Messiah. To be a Pharisee or a Sadducee or anything else doesn't matter. What matters is, have you turned from your sin and have you turned in trust to God? So why then was Jesus baptized by John? Did Jesus have sin that he needed to repent of? Absolutely not. If you look at verse 9. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River. Throughout this passage, there's multiple reasons on display why Jesus comes to be baptized. Let me share with you real briefly four reasons Jesus is baptized by John. First of all, it identifies him with John's ministry. And why is that a big deal? If you remember last week, we talked about all the Old Testament prophecies that go into the appearance of John and his ministry. John is foretold all the way back from Exodus, all the way through Malachi. The work he's going to do, the preparation he's going to do is talked about in the Old Testament. So John prepares the way for the Messiah. Jesus' baptism identifies him with John's ministry. John is the prophet. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. Second purpose of Jesus' baptism, it identifies him with sinful humanity. Again, in verse 9, Jesus is baptized for a different reason than everyone else. Everyone else is confessing sin, 
repenting from sin at their baptisms. However, at Jesus' baptism, he does not confess sin and he does not repent from any sin because he had no sin. But what his baptism does is it puts him in league with sinful humanity. He aligns himself with those he's come to save. It's so fascinating that in the way Mark tells the story, he puts the content of verse 8 right before the content of verse 9. In verse 8, John talks about the one who is coming who is greater than him, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here's this picture, verse 8, of the Messiah, powerful, great, mighty, exceeding all things. And then verse 9, here comes Jesus, humble and lowly, into the water, submitting to John's baptism. In verse 8, he's the giver of life, the creator, the active agent. In verse 9, he's humble and submissive as he aligns himself with sinful humanity. Another reason Jesus is baptized is because it demonstrates his approval by the Father. Verse 10, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. We'll talk about the Spirit in just a moment. But I want to focus on that phrase, torn open. Mark says Jesus saw heaven being torn open. And that word or that phrase, torn open, shows up only one other time in Mark's gospel. It shows up when God the Father tears the temple curtain in two from top to bottom when Jesus dies. So at Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion, the Father intervenes supernaturally to declare that Jesus is the Son of God. This sign, things being torn, are a symbol of God speaking into this moment, this is my Son. The fourth and final reason Jesus is baptized is because it reveals the kind of Messiah He will be. In verse 11, God speaks. A voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This line from God uh, echoes several Old Testament verses. The first phrase, you are my son, well, it comes from Psalm chapter 2. It'd be worth writing this down. In Psalm 2, God announces that the world has been promised to the Messiah. And in chapter 2, verse 7, the Messiah has a speaking part. And here's what the Messiah says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. From Psalm chapter 2, we know there's only one son of the father. In Mark 1, the father identifies that son as Jesus, the one and only begotten of the father. Now Jesus doesn't become the son at baptism. It's not as if Jesus is just some wandering nomad and then he has this epiphanal moment where God chooses him. That's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't being chosen. Jesus is the eternal, pre-existent, ever-existent Son of God, fully divine, creator God. This is Jesus. Not the man who became God or the man who's chosen by God or the man who is like God. He is God with flesh on. And he is unique in his relationship to the Father as the one and only Son of God. And it's important, it's a big deal that Jesus is 
called the Son of God. That there's this declaration of sonship here. See, no other prophet is called a son of God in Scripture. Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses is called a servant of God. David was a man after God's own heart. But Jesus alone is the Son of God. There is no one else like him. He is exclusive in his uniqueness. He alone is the Son of God. You are my Son. The phrase, you're the Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. That comes from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42 is the first chapter of this collection of writings that are called in Isaiah the Suffering Servant Songs. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says this, God says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. There's our line. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. These suffering servant songs, they climax in Isaiah 53 where the servant of God, this chosen one in whom God delights, is crushed by God as he bears the sin of the world. You're my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. It's a line with a gravity that we cannot overstate. The father is saying of Jesus, you are my son, you are my delight, and you will assume your throne by laying down your life in a humiliating, crushing, painful death. The weight of this whole moment is accentuated by the only Trinitarian appearance in the Gospel of Mark. The Son is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks. It's the only place in the Gospel of Mark where the three show up together in this close proximity. And why is it that Father, Son, Spirit are present in this moment at the baptism of Jesus? What does it mean that the triune God appears in this moment? It's not speaking so much to the importance of baptism, but it's speaking to the weight and the amazement of the way in which you and I will be saved. The Son, the perfect, sinless Son of God, eternal Creator God, whom we have sinned against and rebelled against, he will lay down his life and take on the sins of humanity for the sake of our salvation. His baptism is the inauguration of his public ministry, which has a trajectory towards the cross the whole time. This is a way in which triune God points us ahead to the sacrifice that will be made for our sins the penalty that will be endured, the wrath that will be laid upon the sinless Son of God so that you and I, sinners through and through, can be forgiven and be saved and be rescued and be granted eternal life. So the baptism of Jesus raises a question that all of us have to ask ourselves. The question is not, have you been baptized? Though baptism is very important. The question is, have you trusted in the Son of God to save you from your sins? Have you turned from your sin? Do you love the Son? 
He loves you, and the evidence of his love for you is his death on the cross in your place. Some of you in here today, you might consider yourselves spiritual or even religious. If I were to ask you, um, why is it that God should grant you eternity at the end of your life? You stand before him in judgment. Why should God let you into his kingdom? You might say something like, well, I've been a churchgoer my whole life. I was baptized as a baby or I was baptized as an adult. I'm a moral person. I don't do very many bad things. And the bad things I do aren't really that bad, but I do a lot of good things. I, I help my neighbors. I've been really helpful even in the wake of this storm. I, uh, I, I take care of people who are hurting. I'm mindful of the environment. I, I care about animals. I, I, I'm really serious about being a good citizen, an informed voter, all these things. And look, all those things are wonderful. And I would love to have you as my neighbor. Those are great qualities to have in friends. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you are lost, utterly lost. And you would say, well, why doesn't God give me more credit for the good things I've done? The reality is you're not taking enough credit for the sin that marks your life, for your own rebellion against a God who is holy, holy, holy. We all are guilty Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has, is able to earn or will earn salvation on our own apart from faith in Christ. How could we stand before God? How could we stand before the Son of God and say, your sacrifice was ultimately pointless for me because I was a good person all along? John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's an exclusivity to Jesus Christ. And so there's a call to action when we see him baptized, when we see Father, Son, Spirit appear in this scene, when we understand the type of Messiah he will be. He identifies himself with sinful me. The call to action is believe, trust Confess your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Let him rescue you, save you, grant you eternal life. It's the only way. This passage isn't here to tell us we're okay on our own. It's here to tell us you're not okay. And God loves you so much, he's made a way for you. The love of God is all over this passage for you. And he calls you to trust. It's time today to say yes to Jesus Christ. It's why would you put eternity off for another moment? It's time today to say yes to Jesus Christ, to trust him entirely and totally. If you call on his name, he's going to save you. This day he will save you. Now you might think that after such an incredible experience here at Jesus' baptism, that things would go just incredibly well for him. Here's this incredible moment Father, Son, Spirit, all present in this scenario. But what happens next is not the way you and I would script things. Look at verses 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This 
passage has two calls to action. The first one is a call to believe. The second one, for your note-taking, the temptation of Jesus calls us to fight. The baptism of Jesus calls us to believe. The temptation of Jesus calls us to fight. Verses 12 and 13. It's not an uncommon thing that a commissioning by God is followed by a time of testing. That's what happens here. It's the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, and immediately the Spirit sends him out into the desert for this time of temptation by Satan. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Esther, all people who receive a commission from God and subsequently endure a test. Now, there's an important detail in verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. The spirit that descended on Jesus in verse 10 is the one who sends him out into the desert, out into this wilderness. Jesus' time in the wilderness is not complete at his baptism. He still has more time to spend in that arena. He's got a long ways to go. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness, goes into the desert for 40 days. And this ought to be reminiscent to us. If you got some familiarity with the Old Testament. The number 40 holds some significance. Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years out of their rebellion against God. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai after receiving the tablets. The prophet Elijah spent 40 days on a trek to Mount Horeb as he's dealing with all the drama created by Queen Jezebel. And in each of these people, Israel, Moses, Elijah, there are failures associated with their faithfulness. They're flawed people. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeds where everyone else has failed. He is the new Israel, the better Moses, the great prophet once and for all. Now, the story of Jesus' temptation is told by other gospel writers. Matthew talks about it, and Luke talks about it. And Matthew and Luke give it a lot more print. They give us quite a bit more details. And so we might be inclined to read these two verses and think, I I need to get more, I need to understand more, so let me go over to these other gospels. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, It's a good practice, I think, in your study to read the gospels side by side. But Mark shares what he shares for a decided reason. His thinking is not just, I'll give the abbreviated version and then Matthew can be super wordy and give all the other details. I'll be the the gospel writer for people with short attention spans and people who like a lot of words can go to Luke. That's not what Mark is doing. Mark gives scant details. He gives brevity for a purpose. He uses very few words to describe a scene that is utterly terrifying. Jesus is in the wilderness. The wilderness in Jewish life, especially first century Jewish life, is always marked by danger. He's tempted by Satan. He's in the company of wild animals. I take the presence of these wild animals to to speak danger to the reader. Not some sort of tranquilic scene, Jesus reclining on a lion, something like that. That's not what I think is happening here. I think they speak danger to the reader. 
And so Jesus is desperately alone. He is facing Satan's awful schemes. And in the wilderness, look, he is on Satan's home turf. And it's interesting in these two short verses that Matthew, excuse me, that Mark does not tell us explicitly that Jesus is victorious. Now we know he is, but Mark doesn't give it to us clearly in these two verses. He simply tells us he faced temptation and was attended to by the angels. So what's the point of this whole scene? The point is that Mark sets up his entire gospel in a way that mirrors the cosmic battle of verse 13. This is simply round one of 16, and Jesus wins every single round. Jesus' entire earthly ministry is warfare against Satan. We're just a few verses away from Satan's demonic forces confronting Jesus. And it happens over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is fighting a cosmic war. And he succeeds ultimately, fully, completely at the cross. His death and resurrection is where Satan is put down once and for all. Christ is victorious. The battle is won. This is why Jesus came. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Does that encourage anybody in this room today? Does anyone find strength and power knowing that Christ knows your temptations and your trials? And he knows how hard it is because he has endured it himself. And he came for this reason, to declare war on Satan who schemes against you and wants to destroy you. Who uses every lie, every fear, every doubt to make you weak, to make you afraid. But Christ has come to fight. And he has won that fight. These two small verses contain mega nuclear power for the Christian. We get to apply the victory of the cross and the power of the resurrection to our temptations and trials. This is fuel for our fight. Th these verses don't tell us, oh, you got a fighting chance. You might come out victorious 50-50. The battle is won. It is over, Christian. And that doesn't mean temptation isn't real or trials aren't difficult. They can be utterly grueling. They can gut you. But the battle is finished once and for all. Christ's victory is our victory. The fact that Jesus endures in the wilderness and that he succeeds at the cross means that when we face Satan's temptations and lies, we overcome because Christ has overcome. The battle has nothing to do with my strength, everything to do with what Christ has accomplished. When I face these temptations, it means the Spirit sometimes appoints seasons in the wilderness for those He loves. The question for us to wrestle with at times is not just why does God allow suffering? Why does God appoint suffering? And this was an appointed suffering for the Son of God. It is easy for us to feel like God has abandoned us on our hard day. But he disciplines those whom he loves. And he redeems every situation, every heartache, every tear is counted. 
And if he loved the son and sent him to the wilderness for this season of temptation and trial. And if he supported him, protected him in this, he'll do the same for you as well. Jesus' success in the desert means that our wilderness time has a shelf life. Forty days in the wilderness is nothing compared to an eternity in glory. And too many times, you and I, we we look at the state of things and we quietly think, well, Satan has the upper hand. And just look at the world we're in. And without a doubt, evidences of his schemes and lies and his murder are all over this world. But if Christ is victorious in the wilderness, won't he also be victorious in New England or in your home or in your heart? The answer is a thousand times yes. Satan is a defeated enemy. Christ is our victorious king. Is there anyone that you're praying for who is wrapped up in Satan's schemes and lies? Then be strengthened and encouraged this morning by Christ's victory over Satan. I've got someone in my life just like that. And sometimes I get tired of waiting. And I don't understand why the Lord delays in this. Or how it's better that this suffering would go on. I don't understand those things. And sometimes I get mad at the one I'm praying for because their choices are not wise choices. They're not choices that are putting them on a trajectory towards faith and forgiveness and healing and restoration. And sometimes I think the sin that this person I love is wrapped up in is too great. Salvation too far. Faith too hard for this one to find. And I see Christ victorious in the wilderness and at the cross and I'm strengthened again to keep praying and to trust the Lord and to not give up, to believe that if he can save a sinner like me, there's no one who's exempt from grace. Be encouraged this morning, Christian. Be strengthened in the power of the cross, the glory of the resurrection. God does not give up on anyone here. Keep praying. Keep fighting temptation. Brother, you're wrapped in habitual sin, addiction, Keep fighting, don't stop. The power of Christ is yours. The spirit in you will sustain you, will lead you into truth, lead you away from sin. Don't stop fighting. Christ is victorious. Satan is defeated. Do not give him more credit than he deserves. He is a serious foe, but a defeated foe. You have Christ on your side. His righteousness is yours. His blood is yours. Do not give up. Don't. So, carrots. What an incredible start to the Gospel of Mark. When we talk about the way Gospels begin, John gets all the credit for this high Christology. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's awesome. Mark says, I'll see your, in the beginning was the word, and and I'll raise you. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's not a competition between the two. But what might seem simple and plain on a first reading is anything but that. It is a life-changing call to action. In a few short verses, Mark paints this incredible portrait of Jesus. Baptism and temptation. The Messiah humbles himself in his identification with sinful humanity. 
And he conquers sin and death through his obedience to the Father. And his baptism and his temptation are such treasures for those who believe. He is humiliated, we are exalted. He takes our sin, we receive his righteousness. His victory over Satan is our victory. Jesus is the object of our faith and he is strength in our fight. So what will you do with this information? Here's what I believe Jesus wants you to do today. First, he wants you to believe in the Son of God who laid down his life for you. This is the only way any person will be saved and forgiven. Many people trust in religious deeds. Others trust in a self-made morality. Those things are nice, but they don't save a person. No one is saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that though we are sinners, there is a way for us to be rescued from that sin, to be forgiven, to be made whole and new in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel of Mark. Here's the second thing I think we should do with this passage. Jesus wants you to fight. So what's your temptation? What's your battle? What fear consumes your thinking? Where does Satan's schemes uh, get at you the most effectively? Brothers and sisters, in the power of Christ, fight. Jesus has acted on your behalf to win your salvation and to defeat our great enemy. It is time for faith. It is time for fight. It is time for belief. It is time for battle. Brothers and sisters, let's run with Christ today. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for these two incredible scenes to see our Savior baptized and to see him face temptation. These, these are poignant portraits for us. And we confess that what we've done with things like baptism is we've made the action, or we've given that action the atoning power. We've assumed that since we've been wet that we've been atoned for. We've done religion without faith. So I'm thankful that in this scene we get to see correctly how salvation works. And so I'm, I'm asking Father God for my friends in here today who have not trusted in Christ as their Savior that you would draw them clearly, powerfully, even in this very moment to trust you as their Savior to quit relying on things that are empty and hollow and ineffective and damning, to quit trying to work for your favor, and just to recognize how loved they are completely and totally by Jesus Christ. To believe the testimony of his cross, that here is evidence of his love. Father, let this be a day, a moment, where where your call comes to fruition, would you ignite faith in those hearts today? For those who are continuing on this journey, Lord, give them an openness and an honesty as they engage with your word and they see Jesus for who he is. And if this is not the day, Lord, I pray that they would not rest. I pray they would not be at ease as they wrestle with the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do not let them rest 
until they rest in you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith who are beat up by Satan, who are messed up by temptation and sin, who are tired, burdened. Father God, thank you for the victory that is Christ's and that is therefore our victory. Now we still got a battle. We still got to fight. Lord, help us in this. Holy Spirit, lead us in the way of righteousness. Your rod and your staff, they guide us. We praise you for that. So strengthen us. Purify our faith. Remove doubt and fear. Let us trust in the one who is victorious over sin once and for all. Do not let the enemy have any bit of territory in our minds or in our lives. Father God, help us to hate our sin and to love the one who has given us power over it. Let us walk in your righteousness and in your way. So Father, this morning, move us. Take territory away from the enemy. May it be gained for your kingdom, for your glory, for your church. Lord, in our living and in our lives, let us walk in the power of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.